from RTE Radio. I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. You know, we inherited this fossil fuel um, sort of environment and it's, it's just taken a little bit of time to change it. I'm not going to ick anybody out this morning by mentioning underwear. No, I'm not doing it. Or a towel that you pick up in the gym when you thought it was your towel because it's the same colour and you realise it's already wet. And you go, why is this already wet? If the sewer is working correctly, it's not an overpowering stench. It's a light, earthy smell that you wouldn't want in your house. Yeah. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, why the phone box repair guy is busier than ever. Soon you may not be able to land your private jet at Dublin Airport. And when the smell from the toilet becomes a hazard. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's... Oh, I'm sorry. I do beg your pardon. Let's kick things off with Shea Byrne's monologue from the 9 o'clock show this morning and his thoughts on the anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley's daughter. Lisa Marie Presley, it's her anniversary today. She died on the 12th of January 2022 and I remember being on air that particular day and uh, mentioning it because anything around Elvis Presley for some reason just seems to be tragedy all the way. Well, a posthumous memoir of Lisa Marie uh, Presley, written in collaboration with her daughter, the, the actor Riley Keough, will be published later this year. It's due for publication on the 15th of October. It's un- yet untitled. Um, she, when she was actually writing this when she died and she'd asked Riley to help her finish it. Um, and she recorded parts of it onto tape. It, no, it, the, according to the publisher, the memoir is composed mostly of Lisa Marie's words, with Keough filling in the blanks from her own memory. And the book will discuss Lisa Marie's relationship with Elvis and her mother Priscilla, of course, the film out at the moment, as well as her marriages to Michael Jackson and Nicolas Cage, and of course the loss of her son, uh, Benjamin, who took his own life in 2020. As I said, tragedy seems to, to follow the family. But Riley said, Few people had the opportunity to know who my mom really was, other than being Elvis's daughter. I was lucky to have had the opportunity and working that opportunity and working on preparing her autobiography for publication has been a privilege, albeit a bitter sweet one. So the audio book of the memoir, read by Kyo and including snippets of Lisa Marie's voice, will be released simultaneously with the print edition. So that'll be uh, make for interesting reading. That's October of this year. It's due. Then, a total about-face, from tragedy to etiquette. Should you change your clothes when you get home? Do you do, you do that? Now, I know different countries and different cultures, it's not really a really particular thing in Ireland. People change their shoes. They, get, they have outdoor shoes and indoor shoes. They either wear slippers or maybe some people go around in their socks. If they're posh and they have carpet, clean carpet. And uh, they walk around in their socks or they have special slippers for coming in inside. That's Now, I have to say, we have wooden floors, so... We don't do it. And it wasn't something that we did in our house. I have been at people's houses when you go in. Have you ever been asked to take your shoes off when you go into somebody's house? And how do you feel about it? Now, I know that I, it's, do you know what? If you're prepared, I think it's okay if you're not used to it. For instance, do you have matching socks on? Or are they going to provide you with like hotel slippers? Do you have a hole in your socks? Do you, do you have a hole in your socks? Possibly. You know, have you not been cutting your toenails? That's the biggest reason for holes in socks. Not because they wear out, it's because you haven't been cutting your toenails and it cuts through the top. That's why it always goes with the big toe because the big toenail cuts through it. Do you have smelly feet? Like, so if somebody asks you to take off your shoes, do you take them off? What do you do? Or do you say, look, I need to go. I'm sorry. I just, I just turn around and walk out the door. So what? Anyway, this, uh, according to Phoebe Robinson, who's a best-selling author of a book called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. <laughs> <laughs> now that's going a bit far. This going a bit. 
Please don't sit in my bed in your outside clothes. You could at least take them off. No, that's not. That's the subtitle of the book. No, it's not. So she says, when I get home, I immediately change. I don't sit on anything, my couch, my bed or anything else. She lives in New York City and she's like, I want to keep my space clean. I love New York. It's just a wonderland, but it's also very filthy. (laughs) Now, if you've been to New York, you'll know that there's a lot of people living in a very small space and it's an old city and it was never built very well. So they're constantly, they're like the doozers uh, in Fraggle Rock. They're constantly rebuilding New York. And once they rebuild it, they move somewhere else and they come back and rebuild again. It was also very filthy and there's just no getting around it. The idea of carrying that grime into the apartment via the day's outfit just isn't palatable. Is that a thing? Like, change your clothes when you get into the house? Now, you might take off your jacket or your shirt or... Because for me, I don't want to get ice cream on it. That's mostly my, my biggest problem. I want to make sure to put on something that I can get ice cream on without having a problem. But the question, and Graeme Snyder, the medical director of the Infection Prevention and Hospital Epidemiology Department of Pittsburgh Medical Centre, has some good news and bad news. If you get the ick from germs, they're everywhere and it's essentially impossible to dodge, he says. If you just wash your bed linens and put them on the bed, surprise, that's not sterile, says Snyder. You're not going to avoid organisms, he says. The good news is, while infections traced back to textiles are very, very rare. Unless it's the obvious textiles. And I'm not going to ick anybody out this morning by mentioning underwear. No, I'm not doing it. Or a towel that you pick up in the gym when you thought it was your towel because it's the same colour and you realise it's already wet. And you go, why is this already wet? Well, that towel may have done a full in. It's considered really bad manners in Canada if you don't remove your shoes on entering someone's house. Now, there we go. The Canadi- the Canadians are rational. It's probably snowing and they're full. They're wet. There's bits of snow falling off them, so you've got to take take them off. So there you go. Anyway, that was just... I, I, I consider this a personal rant. It's, I think it's for very fancy people only. That's it. That's my, my consideration. I said it before when the other guy brought it up. If you want me to take off my shoes to come into your house, then I'm not coming into your house. Just no. There's my mini rant. Now, it's a short stroll from ick and pathogens to forensics. What a segue. Forensics in the last number of years, of course, the uh, increase in the use of DNA and the questioning of DNA evidence as well over the years uh, has been something that's been a very hot topic. And in the last couple of years, certainly DNA is coming under the microscope. <laughs> no pun intended. But the use of DNA evidence and epithelial energy and generic or genetics and following families and familial uh, DNA has been under question and AI is starting to get involved in that but AI is also getting involved in fingerprints and there's a belief that each fingerprint on one person's hand is completely unique but that's being challenged by research from Columbia University and the team trained an AI tool to examine 60,000 fingerprints to see if it could work out which ones belong to the same individual and the researchers claim the technology could identify with 75 to 90% accuracy whether prints from different fingers came from one person but but this is the thing they've invested a lot of money in this it also says here, we don't know for sure how the AI does it, admitted Professor Hod Lipson, a roboticist at Columbia University who studied and supervised the study. The researchers think the AI tool was analysing fingerprints in a different way to traditional methods. So is it going to bring into question fingerprint evidence? We don't know, but certainly AI, as it has, seems to be having a huge um, impact on various parts of our lives, may have something to do and may play a part in crime scenes and maybe cases from the past as well. So we'll keep an eye on that story. That may have huge implications uh, to the justice system around the world. But I love the part, actually, we don't know how it works. I'm just not sure. It's like when when the heart drug 
minoxynol, um, minodoxyl, the one that's used in the, uh, people's hair started to grow again when they were taking this heart drug. So I'm not sure how it makes the hair grow, but let's take more of it. So you had a great heart and loads of hair. What more could you want? Well, a nice bite to eat, maybe. Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> you know Gordon, he's lovely. Isn't Gordon lovely? Gordon Ramsay was asked what his last meal would be. So here's what, here's what his last meal would be. I eat full English breakfast, uh, butter chicken, chicken wings, and an In-N-Out burger. Beef Wellington with a delicious Monkey 47 gin and tonic. And then finally, a delicious sticky toffee pudding, deep-fried Mars bar for dessert. There we go. A deep-fried Mars bar. Deep <laughs> No, no. See, his first course was soft scrambled eggs with shaved winter truffles. A decadent dish, and he said that his mother would kick his arse since he grew up in a poor government housing, if he had that as well. Final course, two desserts, sticky toffee pudding with a vanilla ice cream quenelle. You see, there was more to it than that. He said a quenelle. The quenelle is, isn't the quenelle when you take two, two dessert spoons and you make this kind of, and then if you use one spoon, which you warm in water and you, you, you roll it across the top of the ice cream or the creme fraiche, whatever it might be, that's called a Rochelle. There you go, a Rochelle. I tried a deep fried Mars bar a long time ago. Really, not for me. Maybe I went to a different Edinburgh chipper than Gordo. Anyway, Last Meals is probably a good enough place to leave the nine o'clock show monologue for another day. Am I right? The ASRI have reported that the National Development Plan underestimates the need for housing. And this morning, Claire Byrne spoke to John Moran, former Secretary General of the Department of Finance and former Chair of the Land Development Agency, and also to Kevin Cunningham, lecturer in politics at TU Dublin and founder of Ireland Thinks, about why the housing issue is so intractable in this country. Claire started by asking John Moran if he thought any political party could make a success of Ireland's housing strategy. I guess it depends. Who, you know, first of all, thank you for inviting me in. Happy New Year to you and, and all, all of the team and, and the listeners. Like, if you can still say that in the middle of January. Um, look, at the time Housing for All was announced, right, um, a number of people, myself included, but but much more learned people than me, said that we had undercut this target, set yeah. to 30,000. And that's really important because now, a couple of years later, we sort of seem to be admitting that. And if you want to change the dial, you can change the dial on day one by getting the targets right. You mightn't be able to have a magic wand and have houses straight away. But if you know you need 60,000 homes and you say you're only targeting 30,000, you're basically telling everybody we're in a housing shortage for a decade, Mm -hmm. which means that people who own houses don't want to sell because they think it's going to go up. People who buy panic and they want to buy so they don't want to stay in their bedroom if they can another year. And investors overpay today for it. If you flip it in the other direction, if you credibly say by year five, by year six, we can actually have 100,000 homes, for example, coming into the market by getting new builders, new developers. Now, today, I know that I only have to hang out in the bedroom for five years. It's tough, but at least I know house prices are coming down. Everybody knows that, and so do investors. So guess what? They pay less today than they were prepared to pay in the first scenario. What's the point in setting a target that you know you can't meet? No, but you have to meet it. It's like running a 10K. If you think you can't run a 10K in 50 minutes and you set your target at 60, guess what? You'll run it in 59. Mm -hmm. If you set it at 50, you might actually run it at 45. So if you know you need more, by definition, you can't scale the plan to what you can deliver today. You have to scale the plan to what you okay, need so to deliver. Okay, so you have to have the ambitious So if we're target. having more kids coming into our 
primary schools, we have to build more primary schools because they are coming. Mm-hmm. We can't magic those today. And okay. that's really the important piece that's been missing up to now. And Kevin, we know that last month the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, suggested that house prices in Dublin should fall to 300,000. That would be a drop in the average of 130,000. Uh, some people, because of that, if that policy were to come to pass, would slide into negative equity. And that mm-hmm. was raised by Leo Varadkar and by the Housing Minister, Darrell O'Brien, as a major concern. But you conducted polling for the Sunday Independent on this and you found that people support it. Yeah, absolutely. So we asked a question which was the current average price for a house in Dublin was, is 430000 Is it desirable that the average price should fall to 300000 And 69% of the population said yes, 20% said no. It was a particularly interesting result. Um, what we could also see that renters and those that lived at home with their parents, both 85% were in agreement with this. Those that lived in council houses, 92% were in agreement with this. And even owners, people who owned their own home, actually 62% were in agreement with this. So, we, so but, but the support dropped in certain cohorts. Yeah, yeah, the, it's very interesting. So one particular demographic uh, for which um, was less supportive were higher income males with mortgages. Um, so uh, that particular demographic was significantly less likely to support uh, Fine Gael voters naturally enough because perhaps they've engaged with this topic as well were also less likely to support this issue mm-hmm. so it is interesting and perhaps that's a that's a demographic that is more populous in, in relation to the political system maybe politicians are more engaged with these higher income males and mortgages and perhaps they've misunderstood or misplaced the public in relation to this but issue But in general the fear of ne- negative equity is not huge is that what you found? No it, it's definitely not huge uh, a follow on question we asked uh, was would you like property prices to go down even if where they're applicable that meant that the value of your own home fell mm-hmm. and for which again 63% were in agreement and uh, only 16% opposed it actually isn't that surprising a result because even very similar questions were asked in the in the UK, obviously a little bit narrower because the scale of the negative equity in the UK is actually quite extreme. But again, within Britain, 55% agreed with the idea of um, house prices, uh, with the idea of home building, even if that meant house prices okay. were going to fall compared to 22% John, when, that disagreed with this. When a politician says something like that, I think the initial reaction from many people might be, well, you can't do that, that won't work. But if you put it on on the agenda, does it then become almost self-fulfilling? You know, when we're in an election cycle here, do voters start to expect that that is possible? Um, well, I suppose to just think about it, right? So, I mean, this is what we were fully in agreement on the way into the studio, right? Our Irish house prices are overpriced at the moment relative to our incomes. So nobody would tell you other than maybe somebody who's selling overpriced houses, that it's a good idea for an economy or a community or a society to have assets that are too expensive. Mm -hmm. So we all agree they should come down. And I think that's the most important message. It shouldn't have been newsworthy when a politician came out and said we should bring down overpriced houses to a level, right? The, the, The real problem is how do we get there? Right. And I think fundamentally, Ireland as a nation has a heart. Right. So we all and that's why I'm not surprised by these results. I mean, we all know as homeowners, I'm a homeowner, that our value may go down, but there are other people that are suffering and we need to actually help them. And so I lose a bit, I, others gain. And, and remember, since the last crisis, Irish household wealth was 500 billion or so collectively. And it has gone up by 500 billion in 10 years. Most of that is homeownership. So house prices have gone up a lot if they go down a little bit. Actually, most people who own houses aren't going to suffer too much. On negative equity, it's really important that what we saw in the last crisis was while people thought negative equity caused mortgage arrears and people to stop paying their mortgages, it wasn't that. It was unemployment. 
It was the fact that they lost their job and couldn't pay. So while you feel bad if your house price is going down or it's a negative equity, if you can still pay your mortgage, you can still have a roof mm-hmm. over your head. It's not as nice as the neighbour who just bought their house cheaper, but isn't. But what's really important for me is that we tried this experiment 10 or 15 years ago. We went into the last crisis with overvalued houses in Ireland. And for a sequence of events, they dropped dramatically by 50%. Confidence went out of the system, it went out of the banks, and basically we ended up with an unemployment of 20%, right? And a huge recession. And that was, as everyone knows, and you and I talked about it a lot yep. at the time, that was incredibly painful. So what I'm actually more interested in hearing is not all everybody agreeing that we should bring down house prices, but it's how do we do it? Yeah. How do we time it so that inflation will help those that own their houses? For example, an idea might be that the government intervention from today is only building apartments, right? If they only build apartments and put supply in that's apartments, people today listening that own houses will feel, well, at least the stock of houses isn't going up. So our values may not go down as much. Debating Ireland's housing strategy on Today with Claire Byrne this morning with John Moran, former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, and Kevin Cunningham, lecturer in politics at TU Dublin. There's a film doing the zeitgeist at the moment, starring our own, or Britain's own, if you believe, GQ UK, Barry Keoghan, which ends with a person dancing au naturel to Sophie Ellis-Bexter's Murder on the Dance Floor. The scene and the fuss over it has led to the song returning to the charts, I guess there are still charts these days. And on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, Ray spoke to the presumably very pleased Sophie Ellis-Bexter. How many years since it's originally released? Oh, it's just past its 22nd birthday. Right, yeah. (laughs) And I see that it's in the Billboard Hot 100 for the first time. It didn't chart in America first time round. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So th- this is brilliant. Okay. Yeah, and, and they're, they're calling it the salt burn effect. So will you explain that to people who don't know what the salt burn effect is? <laughs> so salt burn is a new movie written and directed by Emerald Fennell. It's um, it's sort of sharp and funny and dark and clever, and it's got some quite challenging scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also features a moment where, without this is no spoiler, but a character dances to Murder on Dance Floor and they are not wearing any clothes. They're in the nudies. Yeah, <laughs> They are. Because <laughs> you five boys, what do you refer to it in your house? Is it the nudies or what way is it referred to? Oh, I don't, I don't know what, we, what you're like, just when they've got nothing on. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> um, There's no I mean, more. the nudies would definitely work. I yeah, don't know if we have a set phrase. <laughs> right, okay. uh, people will know because we have an interest, because he's one of ours. Uh, people will know by now that it's Barry Keoghan um, yes. who danced around uh, in the nudies, naked, whatever, uh, to that mm. song at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's, it's a sort of a lovely, free scene, isn't it? Lovely, liberating. I know it's, the, the movie is dark and we won't give away yeah. too much. But just if you look at the scene on its own, it, it's something I suppose that a lot of people would aspire to do or is that just me? <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think there's a hedonism and a sort yes. of ownership. It's someone being like completely like, I'm just going to dance and wander through this space and just be completely free in myself. I think you're completely right. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, Emerald, uh, Emerald Fennell is the director and would she have approached you and asked for permission? to use the song. That's Is that right. the way it works? Yeah, okay. That's exactly it, yeah. So talk us through that, the chats and what happened <laughs> around that. So um, I got, um, basically you get always the same thing when 
something wants approval. So if you get a little synopsis of how the song will be used. And actually, I didn't have tons of information. I just knew Emerald's name, name of the movie, and and the context of how my song will be used. So mm. that it'd be the, the whole of the song and someone not wearing anything. Okay. Um, and that, that was kind of it, actually. Um, and so I thought, that sounds like fun. Uh, I kind of want to see that. And I knew that Emerald was talented and it was in safe hands with her. And then I sort of didn't really think about it much, actually, until I started hearing a bit of a buzz about the movie in the summer. Um, and I got taken to a screening and I went along with my mum and my eldest boy and my brother and my husband. And we all sat together and watched Saltburn. And we were actually, we, I mean, it was quite challenging in part, mm. for sure. But um, we did really enjoy it. And I just thought, God, what a brilliant thing to be a small part of such a great movie. I was really excited about that. Yeah. And yeah, and it's been really fun watching it kind of blaze a little trail, really. Hey, and I suppose people are listening to Murder on the Dance Floor with different ears now. Is is, is that the way it works? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I think the great thing about having your music go out into the world and have its own adventures is that it sort of reflects it back at you and then it, it tells me like other ways of seeing the song. Mm. And actually, I think that's really fun. Mm. I really enjoy that. And, you know, it's not the first time that Murder on the Dance Floor has been used to soundtrack someone, um, you know, who's maybe using a bit of deceit to get what they want because that's what I did in the music video. You know, when I first did it, I was in the dance competition and I was being evil in order to win. Uh So I think maybe it lends itself to that kind of sound. I don't know. Yeah, well, well, (laughs) there's the juxtaposition of murder and dancing. That's, you know, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Exactly. Are you all over the stats then uh, for murder on the dance floor? I do get sent things, but I have to be honest, I'm quite uh, British about things. So sometimes when I'm getting lots of, you know, I'm used to things like, you know, you put something out and it's like, oh, it's not done quite as well as I hope, but that's fine. (laughs) So when I get things where there's lots of like really impressive stats and they're kind of global, I actually start feeling a little bit like, oh, you know, it makes me feel a bit overwhelmed. Well, here's one, here's one for you, which must be, you must delight in this, that on New Year's Eve, uh, 2023 into 2024, your song, Murder on the Dance Floor, was streamed 1.5 million times. So people ringing in the new year, enjoying themselves, partying, 1.5 million of those were listening to your song. How cool is that? That is cool. That's wonderful. I love that. That's really fun. Yeah. That's really fun. Yeah, thank you. And when you're having a busy moment, because I know you're a mother of five, it's a a busy Mm -hmm. time. We spoke to you before during COVID when you were dancing around with the mirror ball. Um, Yes. So, (laughs) because oftentimes then, you know, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, the mom, more often than not probably takes over from Sophie Ellis-Bexter, the the pop star or whatever. Um, And do do you daydream? Sometimes do you have to daydream to keep yourself sane? I suppose uh, about the pop world. <laughs> well, actually, I, I think I've just always really liked the fact that I have quite a bonkers day job, and I get to you know go on stage and wear sparkly things and jump around. But yeah. then I like the fact that when I come home, it's all about family life and what's happening with the kids. And I, I think it's always been a really good um, antidote. Like, it sort of, you know, it gives me like the opposite of that and gives me what I need, actually. Yeah. And then, uh, as any parent will tell you, it's a very grounding experience. Yes, you know? yes. That's yeah. raising people. Uh, <laughs> Sophie Ellis-Bexter there talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about the return of her murder on the dance floor to the chart and the streaming, and the memes, and all the things.
On this morning's nine o'clock show, host Shea Byrne decided to make us all feel ancient by listing some songs that you didn't realise were 20 years old. Here's a few songs that have turned 20 this year. A big year for mainstream punk rockers as they release their album American Idiot. Who is it? It's Green Day. They Featuring the title track and rather more downbeat, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which of course is the one we've picked to play. alone I walk alone I just gonna feel like putting my black eyeliner on absolutely and power chords then Gwen Stefani you remember that after after no doubt um, look either love it or you hate it either love Gwen Stefani stuff or you hate it do you remember this track It's a, it's, a, it's a miss from me. It's a miss from me. I don't count that one. That was not one of mine. That's the, but that's called Hollaback Girl. That was very popular in the poll that we did this morning. Very popular. Here's one I like. Do you remember Kelly Clarkson burst onto the scene with her uh, reality show in the States? Um, but she was full of electric guitars, crashing cymbals. This is supposed to be inspired by maps, uh, by Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Remember them? That's all you ever hear me. That's not 20 years old. There's no way tw- Kelly Clarkson had her first big hit 20 years ago. That was her massive first hit. Will you stop, says Brenda. I still think Wham! songs are only 20 years old. <laughs> oh, Brenda, I'm not going to look up and tell you when the first hit Wham! had, but I'm guessing it's more than 40. It could be 40 years ago. But actually, it's kind of a rock theme today as well. There's a lot of... Have a, the Killers, their first single, released after, after Mr. Brightside, was this. <laughs> Young Guns, 1982. Oh, Brenda, 1982. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, but it was 44 years ago, Brenda. 44 years ago, Brenda. But doesn't it doesn't age you? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What about this one? This is from Mario. Do you remember? Now I have no recollection of Mario. Does anybody remember? Well, Neo wrote this song for him, and he said he regretted writing the song. He should have kept it for himself. Let me love you, from Mario. Baby, you should let me love you, love you, love you. I don't get Snoop Dogg. I have to tell you, I don't get him. I know people outside do, and people love Snoop Dogg. I don't, I don't really get it. I think he's a comedy character. I think he's very funny in, in clips and films and his podcast and his YouTube and all the stuff he makes is very funny. But music, don't get it. Don't get it. But this was a big year for Snoop Dogg. Drop it like it's hot. 
Pharrell Williams was involved in this. He's actually featured artist rather than just the writer or producer. But this is Snoop Dogg. Drop it like it's hot. I don't get Snoop Dogg. Pimps in the crib, ma. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. It's when the pimps in the crib drop it like it's hot. Let's go back to some good, clean Irish fun. That's more like a bit of U2. Yes, U2. Vertigo. <laughs> Somebody said a great song that highlighted the need for Bono to take up Spanish lessons. <laughs> oh, well. She can't afford them. years old accidentally in love for 10 points can you name the film that that's from but not just the film but was it what which part which part was of the film yeah there was a donkey in it and a very large green man with big ears Shrek 2 oh yes Shrek 2 accidentally in love from the Counting Crows there's just I've got two more I've got two more because I, there's, this is with the year 20 years ago people were playing nice soft tunes and doing poetry over it so their lyrics they weren't singing it they were really exceptionally poetry I look at her, she stares almost straight back at me But her eyes glaze over like she's looking straight through me Then her eyes must have closed for what seems an eternity When they open up, she's looking down at her feet Dry your eyes, mate I know it's hard to take But her mind has been made up There's plenty more fish in the sea that lovely? Do you remember that? That's uh, from Dry Your Eyes Mate. Yeah, Dry Your Eyes Mate. Look, and people still use that as a derogatory thing. Look, Dry Your Eyes, forget it, uh, from the streets. It says here, God bless Mike Skinner. God bless him. God love him. I'm going to finish on a clip now. This is a, a, a cultural thing, I think. It's from a, a Cork artist, Tim O'Reardon, who had a hit with this 20 years ago. And I, it says a lot. It's something you might use in your daily language. Have you seen the young man Thank you, Tim O'Reardon. Some say the best thing to come out of Cork 20 years ago. The Langer. <laughs> Tim's ridiculous from Tim O'Reardon. Ridiculous is the word. Shea Byrne making us all feel our years this morning with a load of songs of variable quality that are now 20 years old. Now, US aviation business groups have raised concerns about a potential freeze on private jets landing at Dublin Airport. Claire Byrne spoke this morning to Peter LeBas of LeBas International, which provides private jets and air charters. Tell me about the impact that you feel this could have on you, your business and your clients. Well, firstly, and, and very sadly, quite honestly, Irish jobs and Irish careers will be lost. There's the handlers in Dublin Airport, the fuelers, the caterers, 
the mechanics, the maintenance crews. You know, in a country where every job is sacred, I, I just find that very, very sad because that's, that's the reality of stopping business aviation, general aviation. Okay, and I know, I know you can hear that you're concerned for those people, but your first concern has to be for your clients. Well, the clients, and you've got to remember who the clients are. So we have, let's just say there's a mixture, there's business aviation and there's tourism. Well, the business aviation, firstly, quite a few of the business aviations would be expats. So many flights are expats, first, second generation, returning to their roots, investing heavily in Ireland. I myself left Ireland in the 80s and came back, set up a company. And these people are very proud to come back and, and set up jobs in Ireland and businesses in Ireland. And then... Um, Secondly is tourism, and I think when you look at the, the, the tourism, the passengers, the high net worth individuals that come into Dublin, they leave with a lot less money than they arrive with. So per head, I think, to spend is, is quite important, and I don't think we should be discouraging any of this private uh, mm-hmm. jet landing in Dublin for but, that reason. But we do have other airports in Ireland. We've Shannon, we've Knock, we've Kerry, we've Cork. Can they not go and land there? Absolutely. There are other alternatives. But then we look at the environmental issues there. Every time we land outside Dublin, we're putting more cars on the road coming in and out of Dublin. I mean, it, it's just putting a, a sort of a bandage on it. Um, it's, it's not actually going to help stopping traffic into Dublin. I think all it's going to do is affect jobs and careers and families in and around Dublin Airport. And the other option for them is to use commercial flights. Yes, absolutely. Uh, commercial flights are, are very viable. Um, but a lot of the business aviation people, they, they, they come in, they have a very, very tight schedule. They have a very, very um, important meetings to come in. They make their investments and they leave the same day. And, you know, we, we can't deny that. What about another way of, of looking at this? And the US Senator Edward J. Markey has suggested what he calls a fat cat tax, where you would pay more to fly on these commercial flights uh, to the state. Do you think that, that uh, if that offer was made, uh, Peter, do you think it might make a difference here? I don't think that would be a problem. I mean, you know, the cost of aviation is quite expensive. If there's a fee involved, there's a fee involved. If that's helpful, that's helpful. Um, I, I don't think there'd be a lot of objections with that. Because for each passenger, these private jets, they pollute as much as 14 times more than commercial flights and 50 times more than trains. And you know that there is a push now internationally to ban them altogether. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? The environment's very important. It's very important to everybody, our next generation. But aviation is evolving. Aircraft are becoming quieter, cleaner, and it's a transition that's going to take some time. You know, it's a responsibility that needs the support of governments to develop alternatives. Hydrogen, electric science is very important. And it will change in time. But, you know, we inherited this fossil fuel um, sort of environment and it's it's just taken a little bit of time to change it. But I, I think it's important that we just work on on, on the environment and, and evolving. Okay, I have a statement from the DAA, the operator of Dublin Airport. They say the current cap is leading to discussions with all aviation customers, including those who operate general aviation and charter flights. They will continue to work with the slot coordination process to try to achieve the best outcome. As it stands, Dublin Airport has the capacity to comfortably handle more passengers and flights and to meet the increased demand that exists for both commercial and general aviation aircraft to fly in and out of Dublin Airport. Do you agree, Peter? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that's, you know, I think there is the, 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 uh, the room in Dublin Airport. Now, slots are always an issue. Um, aircraft coming and going, depending on the number of runways. But as far as the terminal handling the number of passengers, general aviation is a very small number of passengers. And usually we go to a general aviation terminal or private terminal. So it doesn't affect the actual uh, passengers walking in at the airport. Mm-hmm. As far as the, uh, the, the, the ability to land an aircraft um, in, the, in the regulated times uh, and just get them in and out every two minutes, that's, that's just an issue that needs to be dealt with. All right. Claire Byrne talking to Peter Labat of Labat International about private jets coming into Dublin Airport, a subject which, Claire notes, is a bit how the other half lives. Indeed. Bill Kyo spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line about the accommodation he and his wife arrived into on their January break in Alicante. There was what I can only describe as an overpowering stent. Okay. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but when you uh, open well, one yeah, of the doors... Yeah, most, most people would be familiar. Um, well, um, I, I'm not sure you're right there, Joe, because okay. we all know what a sewer smell is like. Okay. I mean, I worked on sewers, and it's it's not it's not an over... If the sewer is working correctly, it's not an overpowering stench. It's a light, earthy smell that you wouldn't want in your house. Yeah. But this was an overpowering stench such that when you opened the door, your immediate response was to withdraw, pull back your head. Okay, okay. So that was the first day. So it was now, on, it's, it, 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 it's unbearable, is that what you're saying? Well, the stench. I was concerned for my health. Yeah. I mean, I know people have died from, from uh, inhaling okay. um, sewer fumes. So the person who showed you the apartment was long gone. Did you have a phone? You, had, oh, a phone, yeah, yeah, you, had, a, you had a phone number. I had. Okay, what happened? So, so what I, what we did is we said I, I can't remember what time it was, but it was the evening. We opened all the windows in the apartment, and we went to bed. Okay. Um, in the morning, we looked at the paperwork that was in the apartment for if we have a problem, okay. what to do. Yeah. And I contacted the local host. I refer to them as. Mm. They said they would come and investigate, and. Um, so that was Friday. Yeah, sorry. Yes, they, they would come and investigate. They did come and investigate. Okay. The lady herself and a young man. And he said, uh, he found one thing straight away, which was there was no trap with one sink. One sink in the main bathroom, they plumbed it without a trap. You know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I say, that shouldn't give you the overwhelming stench that we were getting. And he said, look, it must be the toilet. The two toilets. He said, "I'll come back tomorrow, and we'll take off the two toilets." Yeah, that's great. That's, that's great, detective work, isn't it? Yes, yeah. that's, that's pretty well, obvious. That what was it was reasonable. Yeah. But okay. But I did say to him on that day, "I don't think the problem's in the apartment, because when you have that overpowering stench, it usually means you have a serious blockage somewhere. Okay. And that gas has been building up for days. So I presume However, at this. But hang on, I presume at this stage, Bill, you and your wife are saying we got to get out of here. Well, look, here's the problem, isn't it? These people have your money. Okay. And how do you get it back from them? Well, you tell me, what did you do? What did you do? Okay, so what what happened was, um, so they said they would come back on Saturday and fix this problem. By midday, nobody had appeared, nor had we had any contact. So then I contacted 
Booking.com for the first time, who were the people that had my money. Now, within, I'd say, 20 minutes of that email, I was contacting them by email or text or something, two guys turned up without your woman. I've never seen your woman again. Sorry, I won't refer to her as woman. I've never seen that young lady okay, again. Okay. And um, there were two very nice people, and they worked all day trying to sort it out. I, while, when they were here, I made a detailed sketch of how the sewer system would be configured. And I kind of went through it where I said, look, if the problem was in the apartment, it might be in one bathroom, but it won't be in two. And they kind of agreed with me, but they still had to do what they had to do. So they worked for about four hours, very hard. And um, there were other problems as well, but I won't go into that detail about the plumbing, but were, this is the one that was life-threatening. Um, at the end of the four hours, one of them called me over and said, look, we, we found um, the connection from the toilet to the sewer pipe wasn't very good and in both toilets, and we've fixed them both. Now, I wasn't convinced, but I said grand. And my, Joan and I sat there while they were there because we didn't know, you know, so we sat there for four hours doing nothing with the window though. Um, when he called me in and said, it's okay now, I sealed it round and all that. Mm -hmm. I said, Grant, and about 20 minutes later, while they were still working, I went back in and it was back to normal. The stage. A slice of the unpleasantness Bill Keogh and his wife have had to put up with in their holiday apartment in Alicante, as told to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. On yesterday's 9 o'clock show, Shea Byrne mused on his monologue about phone boxes and their use in this 21st century of ours. There was quite a bit of reaction to the musings, and this morning Shea spoke to Paul Murphy about his phone box-related business. Tell us about your business called Phone Box Man. Um, I restore original Irish phone boxes and um, put them back into use, into, into putting out into, into the communities around the country and... Um, for all sorts of users, mainly for local communities, bring them back into the villages and towns for use uh, with defibrillators uh, to, for, to, for a service for the community. Um, and um, some private uses put them in. I, I had a guy put one in. He put one in as, as a urinal beside a little bar he built on the side of his bar for the lads to run in and have a wee. Okay. Um, and one went there a few weeks ago to London to be used for an Irish, an Irish builder over there, put one as a shower beside his, his swimming pool outside in his garden. So, so just to clarify, these, these are the old concrete phone the boxes? Old, yeah, the, the old original boxes. Yeah. Do you want to describe them to people who, who maybe, maybe well, there's people listening who don't remember them? They're, they're cream and uh, and green, chilli green and antique cream. There's the funny one wants to paint a box. Um, and they've got the telephone, the old telephone um, uh, sign on top. And... They have the, the AB boxes in, uh, AB phone, but they had the AB phone inside them on a, a directory shelf and some instructions or, or as you'll notice from the from the PNT or Telecom or whoever it was at the time. Usually on, so, a, on, a, on a concrete. They were made of concrete, were they? Absolutely, solid concrete, yeah. The only wooden part was the door. And that's the only bit that, that didn't survive, really. The, um, the, the box, they, they, they would last forever, although rust got into the, the window part and... and um, Back in Telecom Aaron went around with the angle grinders and cut all the windows out and put pair specs in them. So a lot of them don't have the windows still in them, so I have to reinstate them. 
um, in concrete. So and do you, there's a do, lot of work involved. Do you recreate the original wooden door? Do you put the, the leather strap on that was used yeah, instead of the I spring? Yeah, I put the leather strap on. Yeah, leather strap on and the spr- spring as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. I do all that. Yeah. And you know, so I, I make them. Like, Sorry, you know the way sometimes now you can buy a new car scent. Do you do you put the special smell in as well that needs, <laughs> needs to go in? <laughs> I listen. I, I've often uh, thought about giving them a spray, spray bottle of, of some kind of scent that would have been in while I, but I leave that to themselves. <laughs> but you also need somebody outside knock. Are you finished? Yeah, knockers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they must be hard yeah. to find now, though. They are. They're very scarce now, and um, most of the ones that that I would restore are where people who knew someone. Because because there's, there's a lovely video, and it's well worth looking at. It's called Bye Bye Now, and you'll find it on YouTube. And it's it, it's a documentary on the guys that went around taking taking away these phone boxes, and they they used to just just smash them up in the back of a trailer. So the ones that have survived have either um, if you knew someone in the P and T at the time uh, or whether it was Air Telecom Air or whoever it was at the time when they were starting taking them out. If you knew someone, you could say, listen, they probably said, listen, can I have one of them if you're getting rid of you know of anyone? And they got it and it's in their yard and they've done nothing with it for 30 years. And that's usually when I get them because they say, listen, I have this here. It's, it's, in, it's in a terrible condition. Um, can I sell it to you? And that's basically how I get them. But I, I also realise that there's a finite supply on them. So I, I had moulds made of an original... Um, of an original box so I could manufacture an exact replica uh, in, in concrete same as, so you, you wouldn't tell the difference between the two but and I sell them as well the replicas and uh, what, were you, what were you doing before you started to get involved in phone boxes? Uh, I had a, a long and successful career in uh, the security industry electronic security CCTV and um, access control and intruder alarms and uh, I had it was a good career and um, I put the first camera system into Crow Park, which was worth over a million euros back in 2003. And uh, so there, 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 it was nice. That was enjoyable kind of stuff. But um, through, I suppose, getting caught up in the whole corporate thing and the, the, the recession when things hit in 2008 uh, and my mental health wasn't going so well, I was suffering from depression and anxiety. And uh, I, I had been getting an interest in, in antiques and restoring things. I was throwing clocks and stuff. And I, I, I always fancied to look at the clock, the phones, phone boxes. I thought they were, they were very cool because growing up of a certain age, you, know, you, you, you do remember them and they, they kind of stick in your mind. So I said to the wife, I seen one on the deal for sale. I think it was it was about a thousand euros. And, uh, and it was in bits. It really was in bits. There was, there was no windows or nothing in it. And... Uh, I said to the wife, I said, do you mind if I, we spent uh, some of our, the few bob in the bank on this and me not earning it? Uh, but she said, yeah, go on. She was, said, if it keeps you busy and, and occupies you, she'd be delighted. So I did. And that was that was where it all started. Um, I was doing it. I was living in Collins Avenue at the time and I was doing it in the front garden and it's a busy road. Everyone was stopping and talking. Everyone would stop and have a chat with you about their memories and all the things they got up to in it and their members are some guys would come in, they worked on them. A guy came in, he used to fit them originally and he gave me an original brand new old stock handle that he had in the shed. And another guy gave me an AB phone for it. And just there's so much interest in it. Uh, and that, it went from there really. Okay. Um, um, did you find, you, you just it's, it's just something that just struck a spark or made a spark of me there as well. You said about restoring things um, when when things were a little bit you were on, down, feeling down. When you were talking about yeah, anxiety yeah. and depression, did you find restoring things to be therapeutic? 
without a doubt, without a doubt. And I still do. I still find it very rewarding. And even the phone boxes, I've done so many of them, but it's 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 rewarding going through the processes. And when you get to the stage that you're actually painting this thing that you've either created from scratch or you've restored and brought back to life and then putting the door on. And and, and you see, the, when the guys, when you, when you have a, a, a tidy towns committee and they come up to look at it and you can see them beaming that they're going to get this back in their village again. It just gives me such a, 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 a feeling of, of pride and and accomplishments that 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 I've I've done this, but it does bring so much happiness and uh, it certainly does and therapy for myself as well. So so whatever it is that that uh, I'm, I'm restoring, whether it's I, I did an Eames lounge chair uh, or, or clocks or different types of furniture, I did a couple of Art Deco. Uh, we we go on holidays um, usually to. Antique fairs either in, in England or France. I brought back a couple of uh, um, Art Deco uh, lounge chairs and uh, they, um, I restored them and, and, and I sold them on. But that, that's, uh, I, I do get great, great satisfaction in it. That's Paul Murphy talking to Shea Byrne on this morning's 9 o'clock show about his business restoring old phone boxes. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, let's return to the thorny issue of housing and the question of whether, given the crisis, the planning laws around log cabins and mobile homes should be relaxed. Reporter Brian O'Connell joined Claire Byrne this morning to, well, report on this topic. Essentially, at the moment, planning laws state local authorities can, in fact, remove any building more than 25 square metres in area that doesn't have the required planning permission. What I've been hearing is that some counties are a little bit more flexible when it comes to applying for retention, for example. Now, this issue came up, as you mentioned, at a recent meeting of Tipperary County Council, where uh, there were calls for an overall national policy review and for more relaxation of planning laws, which would allow people live in log cabins or mobile homes, given the housing crisis, naturally. One of those who was very much in favour was Sinn Féin County Councillor David Dunn. He says he knows many people who want to buy a log cabin or a mobile home and want to live in them if the laws would only allow it. These were all over the county, it, it, whether it be mobile homes or log cabins or any other structure. The planners, they said that the regulation states that you can't have a timber structure in the cartilage of your home, which is connected to the, the sewage and electricity. And I'm, I'm calling on the legislators to sit down with the planners and to come up with a, a, a hard and fast rule for these uh, timber frame structures. What are you looking for, basically? What do you think should happen? First thing is a person that wants to buy one of these and put it up, that needs to be clarified straight away and that the guidelines should be more more clear. Second thing, for people that are have provided their own accommodation and who have lived in them for a number of years, what I'm asking for is that they apply for retention, as is the standard practice. They put in the drones, they put in the fire safety service, they put in everything else that would be required. The planners will go out and inspect the building and then there'll be intermediate inspections on the property to make sure that there's no one that you're not renting it out you're looking essentially for a more flexible approach yes exactly when i brought it up first there was an avalanche of councillors came in with with people that are in the same situation whether there was um a young girl that ha- had a baby and had nowhere to go whether it was a young couple uh, instead of living in the box room they, they they bought one of these put it out the back elderly people that who got divorced and out of the divorce settlement and the selling of the house, they built one of these, they bought a piece of land, they put one on it. Problem is, and I'm, I'm not contradicting myself by saying this, but it's the hidden consequences. We do not want 
these people put up willy nilly all over the country and people rent them out. That's not what I want. I want them strictly for family members or strictly for people that cannot cannot um, get on the housing list. So this will give them a chance to save money for a year, maybe two years. And you'd put a cap on it. You wouldn't leave someone indefinitely unless the planners deem that the structure is going to last. That's Councillor David Dunn. And I know you went and you got a reply from Tipperary County Council, but you also spoke to a log cabin company and they're frustrated by some of the planning regulations. Yes, because in their experience, Claire, some areas of the country are more flexible and they feel that it should be the same everywhere, essentially. They also say for people who can't afford rent, who can't afford to buy a house at the moment at the current prices, a log cabin, I mean, it's essentially a, a, a wood house. They can help them save significant money. Now, I spoke with Katrina Nolan from loghouse.ie. I began by asking Katrina, what kind of log cabins are people going for at the moment and where are they putting them? In 2023, our best sellers were our one bed type D. That will cost you a full turnkey one. That would be €32,000 in total, including your bathroom, your groundwork, absolutely everything. So your two bed type A is 43000 That's the one we sold the most of. And then our budget three bed type B is 68,000. The one beds are going in people's back gardens, two beds are going in people's back gardens and we also have the three beds going on land attached to a home. So um, we have Gardaí, nurses, school teachers, FNAs, hairdressers, absolutely everybody putting them out their parents' back garden because they cannot afford the rent, they can't afford stay for a mortgage, it's actually really upsetting. So when someone looks to buy from you, do you advise them of the planning regulations and where there might be restrictions and what have you seen around the country? It's a huge grey area, in my opinion. If you're going to build a office that's 25 square metres or under and have it as a guest house, guest accommodation, you you don't need planning permission for that. Loghouse as a company advise people to contact a local architect because they are up to date with the local planning laws and the local development plans in the area. Some county councils have actually relaxed their laws and their rules around it in the last two years, but then there are other county councils who are on people's backs. Well, let's imagine you're a minister for housing for a day. What would you do around this area of log cabins and possibly mobile homes as well? The planning laws have been in since the 60s and they're totally outdated. So all every single county council needs to just have the same laws and rules and regulations across the board. So there's no grey areas there. All right, no grey areas. And how long does it take to build one of those, Brian? Well, let's say if you order one, there could be maybe a four or five week lead in with some companies. About two or three days is all it would take to put one up, Claire. And they can last generations if you maintain them. Perhaps you have to replace the cladding after a certain period of time. Are used a lot more in England, but um, I suppose there is a warning here. Any relaxation of planning could lead to them being rented out for profit as short term lets rather than providing people with homes for short, medium or perhaps even longer term. Mm -hmm. That might be something that would happen. Now, you spoke to someone who tried to live in one, but found that he fell foul of these planning regulations. One man I spoke to is Thomas Carberry and he put one of these log cabins on his family land in Tipperary. Now, he had a battle with his local authority and in the end, he lived there for a period of time and he had to remove the log cabin home and now it's in storage and he's actually moved to a, to a different county. He told me about the background to his fight to divert himself away from homelessness using a log cabin. Well, at the start of COVID, I, I decided uh, I would get one of these log cabins. I was living in a mobile home that was 
fallen asunder. So I just said, right, I'm going to go ahead and do this. It it was my mother's land. Yeah. So it was literally at the back of our house. There's a, there's a big field. It was just a one bedroom, seven meters by seven meters. It wasn't massive. So an objection went in. Um, and then the council came out and they wrote to me. So I put in for plan and retention, which was mm-hmm. refused. What was the finish up of it then? They were taking me to court and the only option I was left with was to remove the log cabin because I would have to pay their costs in court and it could have cost me fifteen or 16000 Reluctantly, it was removed, which rendered me homeless. You know, I applied for housing and they told me I could be waiting eight or ten years. So I've moved out of the county. Have you taken the log cabin with you? No, it's it's in storage. Would you accept there needs to be some planning regulations in place so that people aren't putting up ad hoc structures uh, left, right and centre? There does need to be something, but they need to relax them. I mean, there's a lot of counties that have them. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. But yet they're making people take down these structures. Why not say, OK, hold on to it until we can find you a house? Isn't that a simple solution? There has to be regulations on everything, but there needs to be leniency somewhere as well. That's Thomas Carberry ending Brian O'Connell's report on calls for planning laws to be relaxed to allow log cabins and mobile homes to be built in people's gardens or on green sites. Log cabins. Come on, haven't these people ever seen a horror movie? And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shiradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RT radio app. And I'll be back on Monday with more. Yes, they say I have to keep doing it until I get it right. So until then, thank you for listening and good luck.